Season 9 of Beyond the Plate is brought to you by our friends at Ford's Gin. Ford's Gin, shake up the journey. We're going to do a fun audio test before we get going. So for you all, we're going to have you each name three of something. Natasha, name three of your favorite items on the menu at the bakery. Bakewell tart, blueberry and walnut sticky bun, and cauliflower cheese tartine. Yum, I just saw that on your Instagram. Ed, name three of the most exciting ingredients you are working with right now. Uh, So we just got some amazing local organic plums, prune plums. Incredible flavor, so floral, love them. What else we've got coming in? Squash, on the spot, loads of squash. So I love that because we've just hit a fall. So all the colors and the flavors, and I love the fact that you can use them for sweet or savory. You can put them in a creme patisserie or you can put them with bread. So that's fun. So it's very veg focused. I, I don't know, I guess pecans. I love using pecans this time of year. Again, like really seasonal. The customers are asking for those sorts of flavors. Awesome, I love it. You both sound good, let's do it. Hey everyone, I'm Cappy and you're listening to Beyond the Plate, the duo season. I'm a chef by trade and hospitality professional. By day, I head up Rachel Ray's culinary operations and co-founded her cooking and kids charity called Yummo. Six years ago, I had the idea to put together a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their communities. Hence, the name Beyond the Plate. If you're new to the pod, welcome. If you've listened before, we're so glad you're back. This season, we're featuring some of the greatest restaurant and hospitality duos in the industry. And we're grateful to our partners who make this podcast a reality. With that. Hey everyone, one more thing. The team behind Beyond the Plate is excited to bring you a brand new podcast called Clean Play Club. Clean Play Club is a kid and family friendly podcast that is kind of like story time, but with recipes. Listen along as we share delicious dishes and tasty treats from chefs and celebrities who cook at home with their kids. Clean Play Club is a great way to get kids excited about food and cooking. Find it on all major podcast platforms and on Instagram at Clean Play Club Pod. Now, enjoy this week's episode. Today's husband wife duo are the owners of the popular vegan cafe and bakery, Bread. That's capital B R, lowercase e, and capital D. It's in Whistler, British Columbia. They won Youth Entrepreneur for Small Business BC in 2021, became B Corp certified in 2022, and have written their first book together, Bread, same spelling as earlier, sourdough loaves, small breads, and other plant-based baking, available November 2023. I have already pre-ordered mine. <laughs> Thank you. Ed Tatton is a professional chef who has cooked in high-end kitchens around the world and now specializes in making organic, naturally leavened sourdough. Ed's food is 100% plant-based, a movement he is passionately excited to be part of and help grow for the benefit of people, the planet, and animals. While he's not from West Philadelphia, he has cooked for DJ Jazzy Jeff from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Listeners, one piece of advice, start following Ed on Instagram at eds underscore bread, where over 100,000 people check him out shaping dough to fun, uplifting music. Next, Natasha Tatton is an English teacher turned bakery manager and animal rights advocate. She leads the front of house team at Bread, a position that has nurtured her desire to establish a vegan eatery to provide more compassionate food choices for people. While she has surfed around the world in places like Bali, Australia, Portugal, Mexico, she can't swim. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, I did a personal achievement this summer. There's a 
The longest public swimming pool in North America is at Kitsilano Beach in Vancouver. It's 126 meters. I managed to do a whole length. I think that's the longest I've ever swam in one hit. And I worked up to that. So yeah, I can't really swim. I'm not a strong swimmer at all, especially in like the ocean or something or a lake. I'm quite scared to swim, but I'll give me a surfboard and I'll get in the surf. I love it. All right, everybody, please enjoy this episode as we go beyond the plate with Ed and Natasha Tatton. It's a pleasure to have you both on the podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're busy. We have, what do we have coming up? Canadian Thanksgiving? Yeah. yeah next week. Pre-orders are coming in. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Your website is full of information. So much good stuff there. I'm excited to have you guys join the Beyond the Plate family. So let's jump in. I know you have made it your life's work to change the face of what it means to, to run a business and bake with compassion. So how does this mission dictate how you run bread? Uh, I think it starts with the ingredients, really, is the foundation of it. We're a bakery. So we have, like you said, a lot of stuff going on around the sort of bakery within the sort of social community, all these other aspects that we want to help with and do our part, but ultimately is only using 100% plant-based ingredients, sourcing local and organic as much as we can, and making the best food that we can that's baked fresh every morning, that has that chef element where it's not overly complicated. We're using a few ingredients and working with textures flavors and how it's presented. I feel like a lot of vegan bakeries, you go in, they're just sort of very simple cupcakes, things like that. So we're trying to elevate it to, to the next level and be just as good or better than our competitors. I love it. Can you take us inside or behind the scenes of what seems to be an extremely special bakery, cafe, either one of you. Okay, well, it's an open plan kitchen. So as soon as you enter the bakery, you kind of transform from being out in a kind of ski resort base to being suddenly inside this working kitchen where you can see all the bakers running around, weighing things, mixing things, making all the products, baking, of course. It's very visual. It's a small micro bakery. So it has probably like eight staff at one time it can feel quite full and then customers we have a lineup out the door sometimes going around the block all the way down to the highway at our peak times of the year wow. so yeah so it gets really busy and it can be quite intense but it's kind of a bit of a local spot as well because our location is in the original village so Whistler now has its main village which is about five kilometers down the highway around the back of Whistler Mountain and we're at sort of the front as if you were driving up from Vancouver with the first stop. And that used to be the main village until like the 90s. They built the main village a bit further, much bigger and big hotels up there, lots of tourists. And our village, Creekside, has become a local's hotspot. And we have a lot of Vancouver people that have second homes there. So we get our sort of semi-local weekend warriors, we call them. So we have lots of familiar faces. We know all our customers' families, their jobs. We know like what's going on in their lives. We know their typical orders. So it's one of these places where you walk in and it's like, hey, Cappy, you getting that flat white? Did you want any cinnamon buns today? You know, how are the twins doing? And it's like a really nice connection that we have to our community which is, as you can imagine, quite rare in a ski resort town where you tend to have a lot of seasonal workers coming and going. But Ed and I are at the bakery pretty much every day and the, the locals notice this. And we'll get people travel like across the town to come and have a coffee and a treat with us because 
they've actually said to me, I don't know the baristas at the other cafes. They change so much. So it's got a real nice local connection. I love that. Is the vibe like when you walk in similar to what I see on your Instagram, like musically speaking? Am I like, oh, yeah, 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 totally. It's funny you say that actually, because we had a staff member um, with us and she had a second job at a hotel on the front desk. And she said, literally, the music was just on repeat. She'd start her shift at 4 p.m. In the hotel. And it, in the hotel, and it'd be the same song. And it's kind of a bit like, what's that movie? It's torture. That's what uh, it is. Day, day repeated. Like Groundhog Day. Groundhog, Groundhog yeah. Day, thanks. Yeah, so it's like that. Whereas, like, we don't have a playlist. It's kind of, you know, you, you want to play different music on a Sunday. You play, like, Bill Withers or, or something like that, you know, on a Sunday. And then maybe on a Saturday, you play some old school hip hop because people are heading out for dinner or to party or whatever they want to do. And it's a busy prep day, so you need something a bit more upbeat. Music is my passion. I've worked in kitchens since I was 13, and I feel like it changes people's mood. It changes the atmosphere. Sometimes it has to be a bit more family-friendly. Anderson Pack can sometimes be a bit too sort of scary, so you've got to be careful like, and know the audience. But it definitely motivates me to work the long hours and, yeah. Once, a, once we cool. close the doors to the public and do clean up, that's when we tend to crank up the drum and bass and get everyone moving. <laughs> yeah, it makes clean up fun, right? Like where you are, was there a market for opening and running a, a vegan food and beverage cafe in Whistler? Or was it more of a personal thing? Let's build it and see if they come. Totally. Well, Bread started at a restaurant I was working at as the sous chef. And it was a side hustle that we didn't open for lunch. So I sort of started making bread for our yoga teacher, for friends. People were like, we want to buy this. We don't want to just trade for it. We think that people would want this. So started at 30 loaves a week. Would make the sourdough on Wednesday morning, put it in the fridge, do my shift as the sous chef. Thursday morning, bake it fresh. Customers would come in and buy it. And it was all with a little brown book. What's your name? Do you want bread next week? cash in hand then it, it grew to facebook then it grew to facebook and people were pre-ordering same sourdough each week so it was kind of moving market research and it kind of helped pay for my truck pay for our wedding we ran that for a year and a half it ended up averaging 150 loaves a week grew out of the equipment the kitchen the restaurant wanted their sous chef back and the customers were saying you need to open a bakery we don't want to wait once a week People weren't getting on, the people were like having to get on a wait list because we'd maxed out capacity. And then we'd have to be like, well, you know, we'll put your name down. If someone else doesn't show up, we'll give you a call around 11 o'clock. And then they started getting like quite forceful and saying like, you have to open a bakery. And we were like, oh, okay. Yeah. They, they never knew. We didn't really sort of, we were kind of at the beginning of our vegan journey as well. So for them, it was like, we just want sourdough. I don't think they even realized that we were vegan or if we opened a bakery, it would be plant-based. But to be honest, it was really well received. There was a gap in the market for sourdough, but also there was a massive gap for a vegan business. We only really had at the time, still do, only two other businesses, which are more juice bars, salad sort of orientated. A lot of the restaurants have a plant-based vegan option, but no one's 100%. So there was kind of a, a gap in the market for both types of businesses. We did do market research, though. Like We knew that it was going to be vegan because we're vegan. So as vegans that are starting their own business, like we want to align our ethics so we, don't, so we can work in a place that aligns with us. You know, If we're creating it, if we're in charge of it, we didn't want to profit from animal cruelty or anything like that. So for us, 
us, it was like a no-brainer, this has to be vegan. But then to get funding, we had to prove the concept. So we did a lot of research. And it turns out that BC is like the most vegan, vegetarian-friendly place in Canada. There's like three times the amount of vegetarians here per population, whatever, than there is in the rest of Canada. And actually, there's a researcher called Ben Haggerty, who's American, but he works at um, a university in the north of BC. He did extensive research all over North America and has actually proven that Vancouver, sometimes it varies between Toronto and Vancouver, but they're the two most vegan-friendly cities in North America. And then Maine, I think, came up like third, randomly, based on the amount of vegan restaurants per amount of people that live there, which was very interesting. So there seem to be a few signs. It's an Olympic town that we live in. There's a lot of athletes around. We had the 2010 Winter Olympics here. And when you come to Whistler, it's very noticeable that there's nobody that's really obese. Everybody's super outdoorsy. Everybody's really health conscious. And people gen generally seem to want to make healthy choices. And plant-based tends to be touted as healthier than others, even though there are lots of junk food options out there that are vegan as well and maybe not that healthy. But we just felt that, yeah, it was with the community support for our bread, they already bought into us and our products and they would just try anything we made. As long as it tastes good, people want to buy it again. Yeah, that's really cool. So with this season, as I, I think you all know, we've been talking to duos and pairs, husband, wife, father, son, you know, people of that nature who I guess I would say successfully work together. What's your secret? Well, I actually, because Tash and I have been together for 20 years, so she's seen me sort of go through my professional career as a as a chef working in fine dining kitchens and I always pushed back with it I was like I don't want to open a business together because we had a we have a strong relationship good relationship with each other and I was like I didn't want it to to ruin that because I know that I'm kind of a different kind of person at work I'm kind of quite a perfectionist he's a grumpy chef <laughs> yeah, all chefs are grumpy God, I'm looking at your, per, talking about perfectionist, your bookshelf behind you. I see the blue bound books, the green bound yeah, that's books, not, the that's orange not, bound yeah, books. That's, oh, that's, who's that? I did that. Which one? Oh, that cool. is that's you. perfect though, that he puts them in the wrong places sometimes. So I see that right in that middle is my favorite book, Six Seasons. That's yeah. so good. Yeah, that's a good one. We've got the, some classics with Noma and some good fermentation books there. We do like cookbooks, definitely. <laughs> yeah, but sorry, I, I digress. No, it's all good. I think... For us, it was because Natasha's run in front of house, it's just important to have uh, distinct roles within the business. Things that I know she takes care of, like payroll, speaking to the accountant. There's certain things that, and then we come together on. So generally I run the social media, Instagram, because I'm making the, the content, I'm making the food. And then with Natasha's teaching background, she'll tidy up my grammar and spellings when I write out a post. Because now more than 100,000 people seeing that, it needs to be correct. And so, so there's, I think that's the key is just having sort of distinct roles within the business so you're not stepping on each other's toes. Yeah. Natasha, tell us one thing you depend on Ed for. Bread. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Definitely. He he takes a very keen interest into styling the food and taking photos. And even though I help him with some of the filming and things, he'll direct me and tell me where to stand, what angle to hold it on. He often criticizes me when I just take no, a. You didn't listen to the question. He said, "Depend video. on me." Okay. What? <laughs> but recently, I took a spontaneous video of him. We got a new bit of kit from a uh, Vitamix. It was a carrot grater attachment thing, and we were really excited because we've been using a really old school technique and it's been taking far too much labor time. And everyone was so happy to get this like really fast, efficient Vitamix attachment. So I took a like offbeat video and straight away Ed's like, you needed to tap the screen because the light's glaring. <laughs> so I depend on him for his, you know, videography skills as well as all the delicious bread that he makes as well. I love it. Wait a second. Is that attachment to the blender? Yeah, so it's a food processor attachment okay. now that you just put on. It slices and shreds and grates and everything. Oh it's, way, it's real, really fast. It's amazing. All right. So can you share with the listeners, what does it mean to become B Corp certified, like share the process. Okay, so first of all, the B in B Corp means benefit for anybody that doesn't know. It's a global group of companies using business as a force for good. And in essence, it means that you can prove to a third party, which is B Labs, that your business, like the planet is better for your business being there than it would be without it. So you have to have some impact socially or environmentally or both. And the process starts off very open and accessible to everybody. You can take the free assessment online, the B Labs assessment. It's a very long questionnaire and it asks you all sorts of things divided into different topics. The first topic being governance. And this really is like the foundation of your business, like your core values, your HR, having things like policies for your staff, having a handbook, having like maternity leave, racism or anti-racism policies, things like that. And then moving on to like your suppliers, where you source your raw materials from. Are they local? Are they organic? Are they good for the planet? Companies that sell things like fossil fuels or, you know, weapons, they can't really become B Corp certified because it's just inherently bad for the planet, no matter what way you swing it. <laughs> um, so you have to have some sort of ethical component with your suppliers. And then they also look at your customer base, your connections to your community, what you do for your community. If you serve your local community, I mean, if you're like just exporting lots of things, then that's not good for the planet. So you wouldn't get many points. And it goes through a number of other topics. And essentially for each question, you're awarded points. And the goal is to get to 80 points. And most businesses without doing anything just average about 50 points. And to get to 80 points or above is quite a challenge. The maximum amount of points is fluid because it depends what industry you're in. The questionnaire changes. So if you're like in a food business, there'll be certain questions you get that wouldn't be perhaps relevant to a car manufacturer or something like that. So the questionnaire is quite adaptive to different industries. You unlock different sections as you go through it. But I think the maximum would be about 200 points, roughly. I don't know if any businesses that have got to 200. Just getting to 80 in itself is quite difficult. We had a score of 87 points, which we were quite happy with because it took a lot of work just to get there. We had to prove that our suppliers were local. We had to prove that they had organic certificates that were valid. We had to show all of our payroll 
documents to prove how much we were paying our staff. They look at things like how much the owners are being paid in relation to the staff, the medical benefits you give your people. They really go deep into all aspects of the business, looking at all your financials. You have to make a profit. It's about, it's not a social enterprise concept. It's, it's about being a profitable business that also gives back. So there's lots of ways to get points. And some companies do more on the social side of things and some do more on the environmental side of things. I think we are a little bit of both, but we probably err more on the environmental side, being that we source organically, locally and have eliminated animals from the supply chain. Hmm. Interesting. Did you get 87 like off the bat or do some people come back and get 72 and then you got to go back again and redo or add on or? Right. So you do the assessment for free and then you submit it and then it takes a while. Usually it can take some bigger businesses like a year and a half or maybe even two years. For us, we got fast tracked because we were considered a micro enterprise. So they have different types of teams working on different size businesses. And because we're a small business, I guess our paperwork takes less time to get through. So we got our certification relatively fast compared to other business owners I know that have medium to large size companies. They, they were still waiting much longer than we had to wait. So the certification process, you then pay when you get to the assessment stage, like when you have the third party actually asking you for all the to submit all the evidence. The questionnaire itself is a great tool for any business owner who wants to find out how they can become more ethical and make more ethical business decisions. We definitely had to review some things to help us get up to the 80 points. For example, we added in a new policy where all employees have to live within 10 kilometers of the bakery with the view that they would be able to walk to work, bike to work or use public transport. Whistler Village is about 10 kilometers in length. So there isn't really any housing outside of that 10 kilometers until you go to the next town, which is a good 30 to 45 minute drive away, depending on which side you're going. And for us, that actually has another added benefit because we get heavy snow here in the winter and the roads can get closed until they're cleared and there can be terrible accidents, unfortunately. So for us, it actually works if everybody does live locally. They've got a better chance of getting to work, especially if you're a baker and you have to start work at 4 a.m. You know, the roads aren't going to be cleared. <laughs> so it kind of made sense on a number of in a number of ways. And adding that policy in then got us an extra point or two. And so there's the analyst will work with you to help you improve on your policies. Hmm. Really interesting. Any advice for other food industry professionals or anyone for that matter that may be interested in doing what you all did and becoming certified? Yeah, absolutely. I would recommend everybody take the, the B-Labs assessment. It's free and you can work your way through it and it will give you pointers as to what you need to improve. So there'll be a question and it will say things like, do you have a maternity leave policy in your staff handbook? Yes or no? And if you say no, then obviously you can see you're going to get zero points. And if you say yes, then it might say, like, what is your policy? How long do you give the woman to have the baby? And then it might have, depending on how, how generous you are, you'll get more points. It's like a, a pointer to say, oh, if we want to be an ethical company that looks after our people, this is what we need to do. And it's not about 
being perfect. Like we certainly can't afford to pay someone for two years to go and look, bring up their child. Although of course we would love to do that. So it's, you have to be realistic on what your business can actually achieve within your budget. But then you can also think, you know, if you look after your people and your suppliers and your community, et cetera, then you're gonna have longevity because people wanna keep working for you, wanna keep those relationships with you, wanna keep supporting you. So it can seem daunting at first that you're giving up so much time and money and effort. But in the long run, I think you have to look at the end game of like, how long do you want to be in business for? And ultimately, is it just about money or do you want to have an impact? And it's a kind of about wanting to have an impact that's that's positive for society. And at the end of the day, no one cares if you make loads of money. People care if you do something good for the planet or the people. I'm guessing some of this may play into your interview process with like, potential new employees like they have to be like fully on board with your culture or your mm-hmm. ethos are there other like specific qualities totally we try to, we try to nurture that really with the people that are applying like you said there's a lot of information on our website it always impresses us when people have done that research it's so easy just to jump on you've got an interview lined up jump on their website find out more and it's amazing sometimes you interview people and you're like do you know what do you know about our business and they're like oh you make bread and then it just goes silent. So I feel like that's a, a top tip for anyone applying to a, to a new position. Just do a little bit of research because you know, the people that sort of write, write a big cover letter and say, you know, they're so inspired about what our business has achieved being so new and things like that. You're kind of like, okay, you're going to fit in well within our team. That's cool. Natasha, becoming a teacher, did you ever think you'd be running this side of things with a bakery cafe type? type establishment? I never really conceived that I would ever own my own business. I became an English teacher because I wanted to travel the world and I didn't have any money when I was finishing university. And a friend said to me, she was going to go teach English in Spain. And there was this teaching English certificate you could get and you could just get a job anywhere in the world. And I thought that sounds cool. But then I ended up being really good at it and sticking with it and traveling around the world. And you know, getting more qualifications and I kind of got to, I felt as far as I could go in that career. And I was looking for a change after being in that industry for 15 years. And at the same point, it didn't always pay well. So I did often have hospitality jobs to supplement my income. I would work in a vegetarian restaurant, the the UK's best vegetarian restaurant. I worked there in 2008, 2009, serving I had kind of casual catering gigs where I would do events like the Open Golf Tournament. I think I can say that I've helped cater for Tiger Woods. Um, You know, so I just took like random hospitality jobs here and there just to supplement my income. So I always had a little bit of an interest in that. And with Ed being a fine dining chef, we were very into going to nice restaurants and buying nice produce for our kitchen at home and cooking home-cooked meals. So I've always had an interest in food and been involved in it in some way. Mm. Ed, we mentioned like the ethics and compassion of a plant-based diet and lifestyle. How long has that been your lifestyle? Like I've always loved cooking and seasonal produce, cooking with my mum when I was young. I feel like speaking to a friend the other day, the first Michelin star restaurant I worked at 
they had a, an amazing like walled garden in the UK. And I remember going out there first week with another chef, introduced me to the gardener. And he was an old gnarly dude that just knew loads of stuff about vegetables. And I just, this, this, this guy's a dude. He was just like talking to us. And he was like, anything you want for next season, tell me and I'll plant it. And I just thought that was amazing. It was a really hardcore kitchen. The guy, the head chef, the owner, he actually had a Michelin star for the longest that anyone's had it in, in the UK. It's over 30 years he held his star. So it was very high standards. And it kind of, I always felt that a year, just over a year working in that restaurant, I learned the same amount as three years at catering college. But at the same point, I always recommend catering college because it gives you that sort of time to learn and, and perfect your craft. Whereas sometimes going straight to a restaurant and you're getting paid and there's an expectation. So I feel like my passion for sort of local seasonal produce really came from there when I was like 18 years old and it just grew. And then I have a heart condition that I've had since I was five and I've had various like operations and things, had a stent fitted in my aorta when I was 26. And I was in the, you know, the ward with other guys that were in their 70s and 80s having pacemakers fitted and, and second stents, which is basically a little coil that goes up in your aorta and opens the valve to help blood flow more easily. And I was on medication and there was no long-term research to sort of show, you know, people that are taking this medication for 50 plus years. So that kind of, I think, started the journey. Uh, Tash went vegan before me, but we always ate a heavy plant-based vegetarian diet anyway and then just cut out dairy and then the more you learn from that this was like seven years ago the more information you, you you get sort of it started as quite a selfish sort of just for my health and then it became about I've always called myself like an environmentalist and an animal lover so it just sort of all builds from that and now I wouldn't go back it kind of I wouldn't say I sort of lost my passion as a chef but it definitely reignited this whole new sort of element of cooking a bit like you mentioned earlier with Daniel Hume at uh, 11 Madison Park he's changed the world with that because he's shown that you can have a three Michelin star restaurant and it can be plant-based and be just as exciting food and just as sort of modern and everything like that so it kind of just yeah reignited a sort of spark that and then and then finding sourdough and then realizing okay we're going to open a bakery I can't just make sourdough bread so I was like oh I've got to make cakes and cookies and stuff and it was kind of a realization like, okay, I'm going to have to start testing these things. And I was like an old granny, like taking in chocolate cookies to the restaurant before we opened the bakery and giving them to the serving staff and the other chefs and being like, hey, because I knew they would give me honest feedback. And they were like, oh, this is a bit greasy. This is a bit soft. Try this. Why don't you try this? So there was a lot of variations. And there still is now, especially with obviously writing the cookbook. A lot of it was with R&D and trial and error yeah how cool what was little ed as a kid what what kind of kid were you really really chubby short <laughs> chubby i feel like when i was about 14 I, w I grew to like six foot two and it all just sort of dispersed out but i was definitely like little chubby kid loved eating all the time <laughs> where'd you grow up uh, southeast of England in, in Kent. So really, really rural out in the countryside. I've got two older brothers and a younger sister. So we were always playing out in the, in the fields and running about. Have, yeah, it was a good, good childhood. We didn't have loads of money. My mum sort of, you know, having four kids, it's not loads to go around, but she, she managed to get by and do a lot of home cooking and stuff. Did you help out ever as a kid? Yeah, there's, there's photos of me 
my mum used to make because we were in the Cub Scouts and after hours like clubs like football and things like that if it was someone's birthday she would always make little cupcakes to take along for everyone I remember her getting me to like ice a letter on each cupcake or whatever for like happy birthday Steve or whoever it was (laughs) and then each little kid got their own cake so it definitely started with baking and it's funny how it came full circle no one else in my family worked in professional kitchens but at 13 I knew that I wanted to be a chef So I don't know, it really was like, you know, when a little kid wants to be a firefighter or an astronaut, I've only ever wanted to be a chef. And I still have the passion. I've got friends that I went to college with or cooked, you know, in professional kitchens 20 years ago that have totally come out of that profession and do something like an engineer or they just got fed up with the hours and the pay. And I just always stuck with it. I was always like, I don't care. I know I don't get paid that well. I could do something else, but food is my passion. And I always knew I would stay within that. Yeah, that's cool. How about you, Natasha? What what kind of kid were you? Oh, well, my upbringing was very different to Ed's. I mean, it was frugal. We have that in common. But I grew up in southeast London in an area that I guess you might refer to as a ghetto. So, and my accent is still very London and it's really annoying because I haven't lived in London since 2001. But lots of visitors to the bakery that don't know me, they'll often try to talk to me about London and I'm actually like a foreigner when I go back, except for everybody sounds like me. But I've lived in Canada for 10 years and I feel kind of like I know Canada and BC a lot better now than I know London. Last time I went back, they actually changed the coins and I didn't even know like how to use the money (laughs) and you know I'd be in like a little store and be like is this a 50p and they're looking at me like are you crazy (laughs) so my upbringing in southeast London was kind of in poverty really and unfortunately I had to go in and out of foster care a lot so I moved around a lot and that was quite a challenge because I was naturally vegetarian I didn't like eating meat as a kid and I struggled a lot with um, foster parents and social services services and child psychologists saying that because it was quite unusual to be vegetarian then these days it's a lot more accepted I think but back in the 80s and the 90s it was like oh there's something wrong with her because she doesn't normally and and I remember people saying that to me and that was a challenge kind of being told that The way I ate was a manifestation of my trauma. And actually, now I've grown up, I'm like, I I guess I can relate to the fact that a lot of these animals are taken away from their parents. And maybe I had some sort of affinity to these animals and didn't want to eat them. I don't know. But yeah, when when I grew up in foster care, I just, a lot of the food was quite junk food. And I'd had a really bad diet, terrible junk food, vegetarian as a teenager. And it wasn't really until I met Ed that I really got to like learn more about food. I met him when I was 20 and he was 18, so we were quite young. And I was very happy to start eating out all the nice restaurants that he was interested in going to and learning about organic food and buying nice food and earning money for myself and being able to to buy foods that I hadn't been able to eat as a kid. And I'm a lot healthier now. So we had very different upbringings, but for those reasons, we're like, we've been very happy together for 20 years, just eating nice organic vegetables and things one of our first experiences well not one of them but in the first year we went to the fat duck uh, in the uk it's three michelin star restaurant at the time it was the best restaurant in the world which is very subjective but on on the list it was the best and it was with another chef so there was three of us that went one of the chefs from the michelin star place steve was like can i come along with you guys i've wanted to go there for so long Oh yeah, long. we had a date and then he was like Ed said, 
Yeah. Do you mind if Steve comes? <laughs> Third wheel. Yeah. He wants to go. And it was such a like amazing experience. We had this like, tasting menu, and then at the end, they were like, "It was seventeen courses, and it was." Uh, have you heard of Heston Blumenthal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were like, "Do you want to meet him?" Because we said that we were chefs, and then the server relaxed, and it was a really enjoyable meal because like, the server was just like they knew we were in hospitality, and they were just like, "Oh, I can organise. You can meet Heston. He's here today." We went up there, and Tasha always like whenever we tell this story, she tells me and Steve were just sort of like it's like meeting Madonna or something. We were just like. Joy they were starstruck. We couldn't talk, and Tash was like in her element. She's I'm just standing like, there, Heston Blumenthal. Well, am I supposed to start the conversation now? <laughs> and I'm like, hey, Heston, like, where's the fat duck? I was expecting to see a waddling around. And I just started some stupid conversation, and eventually the boys found their tongues and were able to talk. And that was funny. It was that funny. is that is really funny. I had a similar experience. I'm staring at your Mugaritz book. We went for a lunch when we were in northern Spain years ago, and it was me, my wife, and another couple. And one of the people we were with, we went into the kitchen. Do you want to go in the kitchen? Chef Anthony is here. It was like, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we went in the kitchen, and they gave us this little snack to eat off of this stick. But the one of the people we were with thought the stick, like, you consume part of that, too. And she went to put more of it in her mouth. He's like, No. <laughs> It was really funny. Well, you never know with these chefs, right? They, they could have What's been, edible? Yeah. Been edible, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. That's cool. How did you guys meet? We were working at a bar. So Ed was at culinary school and I was at university. We were both in between our second and third years when we met in the, in the summer break. I was working as a waitress in the cocktail bar. Ed was in the kitchen. It was kind of a high-end bistro that served food till 10. And then they'd have a house DJ usually, and he would play tunes till like 2 a.m. And we would serve cocktails and have like these fancy guys coming in buying champagne and stuff. And so Ed was... Ed would work in the kitchen and then he would clock off at 10 o'clock and then he'd come and join the dance party usually in the bar. And so, yeah, we were both students working part-time in this in this bar and that's how we met. Then I got fired for giving free drinks away. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, not, not a good move. Learned to your housemate, wasn't it? I think. To my friends, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so then I had to go get a job around the corner at, an old, at another pub. But um, that's how we met. <laughs> That's Ed, you mentioned you went to catering college. Is is that the same as culinary school? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, culinary school. The, it was actually one of the best in the in the country. We used to compete, like, do cooking competitions and things. We always sort of rivaled with Westminster in London. So we were sort of like the top top two colleges for for that. And I was just lucky enough that it was 30 minutes on the train from where my mum lived. So I didn't have to sort of, you know, move to London or anything like that. And it was, yeah, it was a three year full time course. But I, I sort of had the bait. I'd already worked in kitchens for sort of four years previous to starting college. So the first year, two years, I found quite boring and was almost working full time as well as doing my college. And then it wasn't till the third year that I, I remember I got this really good chef tutor who actually was a head chef in a restaurant and would come in two days a week and teach us and he was the one that sort of really introduced me to sort of fine dining food and he sort of had chefs that have been on competitions through the bbc and that that's when it really perked my interest got it okay, i want to get into michelin star restaurants and again there was only one at the time in the local area i applied there it took me about six months to get in to the kitchen but if I hadn't, I probably would have moved to, to London or had to look further afield. So that gave me the sort of foundation 
of of my career. That's cool. If you guys haven't, you should check out the episode we did earlier this season with Kyle and Katina Connaughton from Single Thread in Healdsburg. Katina's like a farmer and Kyle's the chef, but Kyle worked at Fat Duck a while back. Yeah, and they're, it's a pretty cool property and business really that they created. It's pretty neat. And I'm just thinking as you're talking some of the cool parallels there. So, but, so you mentioned like, I mean, you worked in kitchens in many UK, Australia, New Zealand, Canada. Would you say your time working in kitchens all over were valuable? giving what you do now. A hundred percent. When I actually said to my head chef in the UK, the Michelin star place that we're moving, to, we're going to go traveling. He was, he was old school. He was sixties. He was like, this is the worst idea of your life. Like he obviously wanted to keep me, but he didn't hide that. He was like, you're going to go, you're going to waste your career. But as soon as we landed, we actually went to Melbourne first and I got a job at a place called the botanical. And in Australia, they have chef hats. So it's like one, two, three chef hats. This was a two chef hat restaurant. It was really prestigious, 15 chefs in the brigade, right in the botanical gardens, beautiful restaurant. One of the sides of the wall, the wall of the restaurant was all the owner's wine collection. And it had like big people come all the time. Nicholas Cage had eaten there the week before I started, which I always thought was really cool. He rented the whole restaurant apparently. So there was no one like taking photos of them and stuff. I do that all the time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that, that was really... I mean, I actually got this job there. There was no positions and the, I spoke to the head chef. And again, he was English. He actually had went to the same college as me like 20 years previously. And we had the same college lecturers, which was, so <laughs> he was wild. like, I want to get you in. I know that you've got good training. And he put me in charge of breakfast. So I did, I had five chefs with me. We used to do 300 people for breakfast, all cooked to order. So it's little things like that in each kitchen. And then we do the prep. And in the afternoon, I worked with the executive chef and did prep for the evening because he just had me on like 10 hour days and working side by side with him. He was English, had a great sort of French, sort of modern European training. But then also in Australia, they have a massive draw with Asian cuisine, Thai, Vietnamese, and there was all these vegetables and fruits that I'd never seen before because they almost have a climate in Australia similar to like California. So they just have this incredible produce that's grown in Australia that, that I'd never come across. So I always have fond memories of working in Australia and New Zealand because it's all these produce and techniques that I hadn't done before. That's really cool. What was your North Star pre-snowboard trip to Whistler? What drew, drew us to Whistler, you mean? or What did you think you were going to be doing? Did you think you were going to open your own Michelin-starred restaurant? Or yeah, I mean, the reason, the reason I left, yeah, I mean, we left the UK. I was head chef. It was a really cool boutique hotel. And I, I got awarded two rosettes there. And the only reason we got awarded two rosettes were you can't, this is with the AA, so it's slightly different to Michelin, but you can't get three rosettes straight away. And the inspector said that to me. He said, you're on for a Michelin star. You just need to put in more time. But I'd already worked there for three or four years, and I really had itchy feet. We'd been in the UK for five years since coming back from Australia. When we were in Australia, my, one of my best friends from college was in Whistler. And I was just like, I just need a year out. Even though I just, I just didn't, I was, I didn't want to spend all my 20s like, just trying to get this Michelin star, I wanted to enjoy life. So we came to Whistler six months, and then it was supposed to be six months in Montreal. And then, yeah, ended up staying. But I applied to the restaurant I worked at because it was small, farm to table. I sort of experienced that if I wanted to open my own restaurant was 
more achievable instead of these fancy Michelin star restaurants where you'd need millions of dollars for investment. And then I just found I'd already been making sourdough for 10 years previously and then just sort of fell into baking and the sourdough. I always say to people, it's kind of like Japanese chefs. I found my niche within food. You know how Japanese chefs are a ramen chef or sushi chef. I sort of found sourdough and it's so simple, flour, water and salt, but at the same point, so complex. And every day I make sourdough, I learn something new or how to handle it. Yeah, that's so cool. Okay, so you use plant-based alternatives and and some savory and sweet applications, I suppose, or sourdoughs that would traditionally include dairy. And I've seen panettone, hot cross buns, sticky buns, cinnamon buns, English muffins, brioche, babka. You're replacing ingredients like butter and milk and, and things of that nature. Can you give like an example or two of how you do this? Totally. There's a few that are really easy, like fats and milks, pretty easy to replace. Eggs, we'll talk about in a minute because eggs are very complicated. But with regards to milk, plant milks, soy milk and oat milk are really good. The the protein is similar, but they can be creamy, especially if you make them yourselves with or almonds, things like that. And then fats are really easy to replace, especially in the last five years, vegan butters, alternatives have, have become a lot better as they sort of develop them, especially within vegan blocks. It's not just margarine now, they're They've, they've created sort of vegan butters that will brown. You can make a noisette with a vegan butter, which is kind of crazy because you, there's no way you could do that 10 years ago. And then, and then we like to use more whole foods. So even extra virgin olive oil, you mentioned the, the brioche. An olive oil in a brioche dough is incredible because you get that richness, you get that flavor, and olive oil is good for us as well. So, But when it comes to eggs, that's definitely the tricky part because an egg is, you know, you have the white, the yolk, or if you're using the whole egg together when you're trying to aerate it and whisk it. So you have to look at what you're trying to replace. Are you trying to replace the yolk where you're just binding it in that instant or a whole egg? We'll use organic Canadian flaxseed, linseed, because we can blend it ourselves to a powder, add a plant milk. Generally, we use oat milk, and then, you know, you whisk that together, you, you allow it to bloom for 10 minutes and it becomes this sort of like gelatinous paste, egg-like consistency that we can add to cakes or doughs and replace a whole egg. Uh, if we're looking at the white, then we probably would move towards something more like aquafaba, the, the cooking liquid from chickpeas. And you can stabilize that and, and whisk it the same way that you would an egg white to make a meringue and we found within testing with the cookbook instead of using a low oven and a dehydrator works really well to make french meringues but you can also make italian meringue or swiss meringue with it as well i know offline you both had mentioned you listened to the daniel hum episode of beyond the plate and so for those listening who may not be Familiar, Daniel Hum is the chef owner of 11 Madison Park in New York, which at one point was the number one restaurant in the world, and more recently was named the first plant-based three Michelin star restaurant in the world. Long story short, I reached out to chef Daniel Hum, told him a little about you both, and he asked, at 11 Madison Park, the hardest thing for us to turn plant-based was our laminated bread. Once we conquered that, we felt like we could make an amazing plant-based croissant. Do you have any dream dishes or breads that you'd like to recreate as plant-based but haven't been able to yet? Well, that's a very good question. I haven't given it that much thought, 
to be honest, like the croissant is definitely up there and a huge challenge. And kudos to him because I've seen them on their Instagram page and they do um, bake it nice and they look incredible. For me, I was talking to a friend the other day in the book, I have a lemon tart recipe, tart or citron. And that was one of the first desserts I made at a one Michelin star restaurant when I was on pastry section with my friend, a Scottish guy called Stuart. And that was, you know, you've got butter in the pastry, loads of eggs in the custard. So I managed to replicate that and make that vegan in this, in our upcoming cookbook. And it did take quite a few attempts to get right. I did use just egg, liquid egg. In the end, I found that was the best way of getting it set and get the texture right. So that was definitely an accomplishment. And I would say the other one was the puff pastry for our sausage rolls. But again, they're the ones that I've done. I haven't really put any thought recently into what's next, what's the next sort of milestone. I guess it's just refining and always improving. And that's why I love food so much is that it is that never ending search of perfection. A lot of the time, the sourdough bread that I make, like yesterday's bake was incredible. The fact that, you know, we had Thanksgiving and all the cinnamon buns, all the sweet treats and all the sourdough came out to a very high standard. I have to remember those times because it's not always like that. Even in a professional bakery, like I look at so many bread and Tasha's always telling me, don't worry, people won't even notice. It's just because I see thousands of loaves and I'm like, when I know it's a good one, I almost want to like tell all my friends like, come today because this bread is really good. <laughs> that just reminded me, Thanksgiving 2022, yeah, last year. It was quite the opposite. <laughs> we had a baker chopped a bit of her finger off. She'd been to the hospital. Um, we had the rationale oven that we bake all the cinnamon buns, cookies and like smaller baked goods. That broke. One of the mixers, the Hobart mixer, had broken. And we we had all these pre-orders and it was like, the show must go on. We were baking yeah. cookies in the deck oven. That's usually where we like bake the bread. On cooling racks. On cooling racks. So a cooling rack in the deck oven, then the cookies on top. We managed to like put it off. We, we did all of our menu items and as many as we could make with these limited resources. And we managed to fulfill all of our orders. And then just as we were closing up, a little old lady poked her head around and went, anything left? And I said, I'm sorry, we're all sold out now. We're about to close. And she said, well, I wish wish you would have made more. And I was like, inside, I was like, you don't know what we've been through, lately. (laughs) You don't know what we've achieved. You weren't there, man. You weren't there. You don't know. And it was just like one of those really funny moments where we were just so broken from all the disasters of the weekend. This is what running a bakery is like. It's like highs and lows. And it's like, yeah, we've done it. And then it's like, boom, slam you back down. Like, didn't make enough. (laughs) You've made my day, though, that you managed to get a question from Daniel. Yes. (laughs) That might be the closest I ever get to him, but... It is on our wish list to get to New York and eat at his restaurant because since going 100% plant-based, like, why not? And I do think an organic sourdough vegan croissant is the holy grail of baking. Yeah, because I don't know if (laughs) most people would put a bit of commercial yeast in there. So I'm not sure if there's a sourdough, but like Tasha said, that's, that's pretty skillful if they are. Which Watch this there. space, book two. You yeah. know? <laughs> <laughs> Natasha, are people still surprised when they find out the bakery is plant-based? I have to imagine so, but I'm guessing you shock a lot of people with your talents. <laughs> 
Yes, and obviously, Cappy, you have to come bring the twins up to Worcester for oh, your please, I would love ski to. holiday and come check <laughs> us out. And ski school's just opposite us, so you can just drop the kids and you anyway, yes. um, sit yeah. there and eat and drink coffee. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. People are surprised, and let me tell you, it's not just the regular non-vegans; it's all that the vegans are surprised because we don't because everything's vegan. We don't like you know, like you go to a regular cafe and it would be like vegan brownie. Well, we don't have vegan on every product because they're all vegan. So well, anything. But don't. We don't write vegan anywhere. It's no. just, you walk in, it just looks like a nice bakery. And it just says cinnamon bun, cookie, cake, whatever it is. And so then we get like vegans coming in and they go, is anything vegan? And I'm like, yep, it's all vegan. And they're like, mm. they don't believe you. And they're like, is that vegan? Is that vegan? Is that vegan? And it's like, yep. Yep, it's all vegan. They're like, okay. You're like, I said, what part of I said everything's <laughs> vegan? Don't you understand? Yeah, and I'm like, I'm one of you. Anyway, and then they'll be like, okay, I'll get a cinnamon bun. You can tell they're still not that comfortable with it, but okay, right, cinnamon bun. Did you want any cream cheese frosting with that? Uh, well, is it vegan? Or sometimes they're really sassy. And I'll be like, well, I would if it was vegan. And I'm like, yep, yep, it's all vegan. And then- It's funny. <laughs> and it just goes on. So there's those people that can't believe it's all vegan because it looks so good. And they're not used to seeing good vegan products because unfortunately, there aren't a lot of good vegan products out there. And I've got theories about this. And my theories are that in food and beverage, you get two vegan options. You either get the ones made by professionals who aren't vegan, but feel like they have to do something vegan because they want to be accessible by all. And they don't really put their heart and soul into making the vegan option because us poor vegans are just so grateful there's something for us to eat. And we're so encouraging for them to have vegan options. We'll just give them a five-star review, even if made five days ago, and you could throw it at someone's head and it would knock them out. So... <laughs> There's those people that just do something vegan because they feel they have to, but they don't really want to. And you can taste that lack of energy in the food usually. Ed, were you once that chef? No, definitely not. No, okay, just making sure. Maybe years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe in my yeah early, early years. What vegetarian entree do we, yeah, are we exactly. going to put on the menu? Oh, I can't bake Another bake risotto, it. another risotto, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mushroom risotto, yeah. Uh, anyway, so there's that type. And then also on the other side, You've got these really lovely, passionate vegan activists who want to open a vegan cafe because they want everybody to eat vegan. And, and we love these people, but they have no culinary background whatsoever. And usually their products just aren't that good because they don't understand about textures and flavors and cooking techniques and things. And so we like to support them because they're vegan and we're like, yay, vegan, we're on the same mission together. But it's like, it's just not that good. And we're trying to bridge this gap and trying to say like, look, we've got Ed, Michelin experience, fine dining chef, turned baker. Thanks, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure at all. Making the finest quality products we can. And they're vegan because we're vegan. So yay, yay, yay to everybody. And uh, we love to wow people. And one of the best compliments we get, though it is kind of strange, is it doesn't even taste like it's vegan. And hearing that is kind of like, is kind of bittersweet really. Cause I want to say, well, like vegan can taste good. I think it's just previous it's experiences. Like, yeah, yeah, it's like, I know what you mean. I know why you're saying this and thank you very much for appreciating it. And 
a lot of people just make comments like that. You know, you hear people at the back of the cafe, you can hear sort of conversations going on. You wouldn't even know it was vegan. And I love hearing that too, because it means that we're achieving our mission of, of making people choose plant-based options even if they don't, they don't have to be um, politically, you know, aligned with us or as ethically driven as us. Because at the end of the day, food cuts through all the crap because you can believe whatever you want. You can say, I'm a hunter. I love going out and killing my own dinner and it's great and I eat meat every day. But if I give you the most amazing cinnamon bun you've ever had that just happens to be vegan, you'll probably want to eat it again. You, you don't care. But as long as you're eating it, and we're moving forward in that direction, then Ed and I are happy. We're not, we're not looking for everyone to put their hands up like us and say, I'm a proud vegan. But that's really pointless. What we're looking for is for people to make more plant-based choices and improve the general quality of plant-based options out there. And that's really why we've written the cookbook because everybody's got our recipes or they will have when they buy the book. And if they want to go out and open a bakery and copy all of our menu, please go ahead. We're happy for you to do that. I mean, thank you for this most perfect transition. Not just any book, a book touted as one of Canada's most anticipated books this year by, is it Chapters Indigo? Mm -hmm. I believe so, yeah. They're a big bookseller, yeah. That's exciting. So why should we buy Bread the Book? I mean... First of all, when Penguin Random House reach out to you and say, are you interested in writing a cookbook? It's one of the biggest publishing houses in the world. And, and both Natasha and I grew up reading, you know, their kids' book and stuff like that. So we knew it had like good, good energy and good, you know. But it's coming up to Christmas. So we've got loads of festive recipes in there. We've got our mince pies. We've got Christmas sourdough in there. We've got pecan pie as well, because American Thanksgiving's coming up too. November, we've got loads of festive treats. We've got pumpkin donuts with cranberry jam inside. Yeah, chai spice donuts. They're Ooh. pretty tasty. So yeah, whenever we get onto this bit and start talking about that cookbook, my belly just starts like rubbing. Yeah. That was the best bit about the cookbook, even though it was a lot of trial and error. When you're doing photo shoot days, there's a lot of food left and we had a lot of friends knocking on the door. <laughs> did you do the shoot at the bakery? We did, yeah. We shot 100% of it at the bakery. We had to take, so we had a year to write the book. And for us, we wanted to shoot it. There was talk of sort of renting an Airbnb and changing it up. But in the end, it just felt right doing it at the bakery. We had all the equipment there. It's a big undertaking. Natasha, did your teaching skills come into play when it came time to like project manage this book? Yeah, I project manage everything we do. So yeah, absolutely. I... So yes, it was perfect. No, she left me totally to it. She knows not to get involved too much in the in the sort of production of the the day. I mean, you but you hear like you have a year to write it, and a lot of people who I know. They wait. It's a huge undertaking. I've, I've been it's involved they firsthand. Wanted, they wanted a hundred recipes. So for me, did straight, you get going on it? We, we had, had to, to. Yeah, we had to because I was like, "That's two recipes a week, and that's not just writing it. That's shooting it, developing it on average, obviously." And you're running a bakery every day. And we're running the bakery. And we had to take three months out from shooting because we're in the mountains. We wanted to do as much of it as or I did in natural light. I didn't want it to be too overproduced with all this fake lighting and stuff. And also Christmas is so busy for us at the bakery. There's just no time. I'm working so many hours. But so it's very dark. And it's very dark and blue light. So with all the snow that we have around. And the snowboarding's really good at that time as well. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
<laughs> we have to manage our schedule. So you say like a lot of people you know put it off, they procrastinate. I think there's an old phrase is give a busy person something to do. When you have so much going on in your life with your business and then someone gives you another project on top of that, you have to schedule your time. So there was no time to waste. It was like, as Ed said, two recipes a week. Okay, we're going to have to do those two recipes on a Monday. We're going to have to test them, write them, shoot them. And and hopefully that goes all okay. But sometimes, and we're so lucky this didn't happen to us, sometimes the publisher doesn't like the photo that you submit and they want you to do the whole shoot again. And this is really difficult because we're two hours away from Vancouver. Our photographer lives down in Vancouver. We have to schedule a whole day for them to come up. So we're shooting like eight things throughout the day and you wanna make sure that everything looks great, but you don't have time to redo stuff if it doesn't. So not all the pictures are as perfect as we would have liked, but Penguin very happy with them. So that you have to let go of perfection as well when you're writing a book. And you have to just accept that perfect is the enemy of done. And if you try to get it perfect, you're never going to get the cookbook finished. Which she kept saying to me, which is <laughs> not, not easy to digest. It's good enough. Okay, so for everybody listening, this book has already received huge praise. And I just want to share a, a, a little bit of that. So the first one, I'm going to read a quote from Chad Robertson, who's the co-founder of Tartine, best-selling author of Tartine Bread, who if you go to many restaurants and bakeries that have a bookshelf, you're likely to find that book on their shelf. I mean, I laugh in a positive way because people are like, oh, have you been to this bakery in LA? And I'm like, yeah, it's great. And then I go to that bakery and it's like, Chad's book is on the shelf, which is not a bad thing. Like the bakery's so great, but like I'm just kind of painting the picture of the praise, if you will. It's the baker's Bible. The yeah. baker's Bible. It's yeah. Like, yeah. If you, it always gives you confidence if you go in there and they know Tartine, their bread's probably going to be pretty good. 100%. So Chad said, I quote, bread lays a deep foundation for understanding sourdough, vegan whole food baking with strong commitment to true sustainability, starting with bread and growing into a full range of sweet and savory nourishing baked goods that has made the bakery cafe a cornerstone both in their community and in the movement towards sustainable food systems and practices. How does that make you feel? Emotional. He's such a nice guy. <laughs> I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we were stoked. And Maurizio as well. The, he also endorsed our book, which we were really stoked about. They're like our two biggest sourdough heroes. Yeah. I mean, and I'm in New York right now. And when I moved, when I used to live here, I had moved here God, nearly 20 years ago, but Jim Leahy, who is incredibly talented, another incredible baker, author of the Sullivan Street Bakery Cookbook, he said, I quote, plant-based seasonal baking is celebrated in this beautiful ode to bread. Let Ed's passion for and deep knowledge about baking be your guide, and you'll soon bring his bakery into your home. I love this. Would you say the book is more for experienced bakers or, or beginners or both? I wanted to write a book that that people could grow into. It sounds corny, but a book for everyone, a book for beginners to to trust me that they make a few recipes and they're like, it gives them confidence to try something a bit more advanced. So there's there's the cinnamon buns that we make at the store that take, you know, two or three days because you have to feed the starter and make a levan and ferment the dough. But there's also a really tasty, there's a gluten-free chapter with an almond and orange cake that you just make in a food processor. 
Okay, so that's interesting and, and perfect because I noticed the gluten-free recipes and, and baked goods. And I don't know if you got this episode, but we had award-winning chef Ken Oranger from Boston on this season and his 14-year-old daughter is celiac. And so they came out with a book together called Cooking with My Dad the Chef and it's 70 gluten-free recipes. So I let them know that I was having a conversation with you all. And they sent me a question saying, how is the best way to achieve the depth of flavor and texture of sourdough with gluten-free bread baking? Oh, you know, when the whole sort of pandemic happened and it felt like the whole world was making sourdough because everyone had more time on their hands, I was like, this is my time to make a gluten-free sourdough starter. And I found out that Lady Gaga is gluten-free or celiac. So the starter was called Lady Gaga because when you... When you grow a, a culture, generally they're female. So I had this starter, Lady Gaga, and started sort of diving into the world of gluten-free sourdough. And it definitely comes down to blending flours, normally like three to five different flours, brown rice flour, sort of five to 10% buckwheat flour. Buckwheat flour is incredible. I love the depth you get of flavor from that, but it, you'd never want to go 100% because it's so heavy. Sorghum is a really good one to use. For us, the reason we don't have a gluten-free sourdough is because we're so small, like Natasha mentioned, cross-contamination will naturally occur because it's just so airborne. But also it's really important for us to use Canadian and organic ingredients as much as we can, especially for the bread. Obviously with nuts and seeds and spices, that's not possible. So we just really battle with trying to source those ingredients and also the timing, the fermentation is totally different to, to wheat sourdough but I love it I found it really interested and there's some incredible bakers out there making really tasty gluten-free sourdough so I would just say it's a lot of testing and finding what you like as a baker the, the different blends of flours some people use 50% brown rice flour and sorghum and and the buckwheat but you can totally try out different things and starches I think starches within there are really important tapioca or things like that nice Awesome. All right, let's switch gears. Well, we touched upon social impact a little bit as it relates to like B Corp and whatnot. But uh, as you both know, the podcast celebrates social impact uh, with all of our guests and learning how they do it keeps all of us going, all of us inspired and everyone has it or does it, I should say, in their own way. So I'd love for you guys to jump in, whether it's causes, charities, donation of revenue. I know you all do that. And, and by the way, throw in your, I mean, I guess we talked about your uh, commitment to sourcing as locally as possible. But I feel like all of these things fall under social impact and then some, but I would love to give you the floor, share more. Yeah. So, I mean, with the sourcing locally, we're supporting our local economy and other local growers in the area. So we love to do that. But then beyond that, a little bit more tangible is the fact that we do donate 1% of our revenue to animal and environmental causes. So we've donated around $20,000 so far, which is a considerable amount of money for a bakery of our size. We're always battling against the cost of living in a ski resort for our staff and trying to make their pay as appealing as possible and cover their basic needs and more. So we do look after our staff and pay well. One of our main partner charities that we work with is 
Trees for the Future. This is a charity that's been going for over 20 years and they work with farmers in sub-Saharan Africa who have degraded land and want to regenerate it mainly because they have virtually no income anymore and they're food insecure. And you have to be careful when you sign up for these programs to donate money for trees to be planted because there are some bad ones out there where they actually have known to evicted like people so they can say they're doing well by planting all these trees on people's land trees for the future don't do that the farmers actually volunteer for a five-year program where they they build something called a forest garden they build a, a wall of trees around a plot and start to put regenerative plants into the soil so they can get nutrients and protect it from the elements a bit and within five years they have a fully flourishing garden lots of produce they can use to support themselves their families employ other workers to come and sell food at markets so it's a really nice social impact program we plant a tree for every two coffees that we sell it was for every coffee but unfortunately the price of planting a tree has gone up so much in the last few years we've had to adjust our policy to make sure that we can remain profitable and not over give to this cause so for every two coffees that we sell there's a tree planted by a donation that we make to this charity. And then we've also donated money to animal sanctuaries and like our local environmental group. And we'd like to do more of that in the future. So adjusting our Trees for the Future Giving Back program will help us to have more money in the pot. So one of the ways we do this in, in our business is we actually use a special bookkeeping cash flow technique called Profit First. And we have many different accounts for different things like payroll or equipment or paying suppliers. And one of our accounts is giving back. So we always divide up our income into these different buckets, if you like, and put 1% of our revenue into the giving back program. And that's always managed to cover the trees and then anything else left. We have that animal and environmental kind of impact we do get approached by a hell of a lot of people. Like it's crazy when you open a business, how many people knock on your door for money. By having a mission on what we're focused on, it helps us to say no to some people because we can't afford to give to everybody, unfortunately. We often get teenage athletes ask us to sponsor them for a race. And I'm like, that's so sweet, but it's not really what we're doing here as a business. So I usually tell them to go, I refer them to other businesses I know will give them money. So you kind of have to have a clear mission on, on who you want to help. We can't help everybody. We love the tree thing because coffee originates from Ethiopia. So it's nice to sort of pay it back to where How, how many trees are we up to now? We've planted almost 70,000 at the time of recording this show, which I say, people ask me why we decided to do this. And I said, in the beginning, we didn't know if we were going to make any money. And you hear so many horrible statistics like most food and beverage operators go out of business in two years 10 percent make it past five years or like i don't know there's loads of horrible things here everyone's basically telling you you're going to fail as soon as you start <laughs> and i was like well if we make no money at least we've planted a forest you know we can feel good about that we've had an impact even if we've lost everything we own <laughs> we planted a forest so that's kind of why i wanted to do it i was like i want to have an impact i want to have a legacy and like i said earlier it's like just making money is great but Nobody really cares. So it's nice to do something that means more. Yeah, I think that's so important and such great advice. I, I'm glad you guys shared that advice of 
how important it is to have a mission to a cause or organization you you that's meaningful to you or that you want to support because it really helps drive that and it allows you to pass on another opportunity a little bit easier than feeling so bad about passing on an opportunity because part of the reason why I started the podcast is as you're saying you guys could probably give or do an event or do something like every not even every week every night of the week there's probably something else you could give to and unfortunately that's not reality so I think that's great advice. And I think also it gets you out of bed in the morning, really. If, you have that, if you're just getting out of the bed to go to the bakery and make some bread and make money, it's all good. That's fine. But I think it's that driving force and that focus that's like we're on a mission and we want to do more than just own a bakery. And aside from having the passion for the food and everything like that, I feel like it gives us the extra motivation. Yeah, I love it. Awesome. Thank you for that. Before we get to the speeder on, I want to take a quick second to give some love to our friends at Frito-Lay. More specifically, their Off the Eaten Path line of snacks. Off the Eaten Path's Veggie Crisps are crunchy rice and veggie snack made with real green peas and black beans. They are gluten-free, non-GMO project verified, plant-based, and of course, packed with flavor because they believe in great tasting snacks that you and I can feel good about. Also, they are proudly offered in commercially compostable packaging. Frito-Lay, we thank you. You know, this off-eaten path veggie crisp kind of got me thinking. Not sure if you saw, but Frito-Lay started this crazy TikTok channel called Flavor, F-L-V-R, where people are using all kinds of chips and snacks in non-traditional ways and recipes. So being these snacks are plant-based, they kind of seem up your alley, Ed. And given that, with all the buzz around the bear and the episode where they use crushed chips as a garnish on an omelet, as a baker, any thoughts on a crazy recipe idea or concept using these snacks? I mean, I love snacks, first of all. <laughs> we always joke that hummus saved our business because during the pandemic, like we were making a, a hummus cookie, we used to call it. I came up with it. It's basically everything that's in hummus minus the garlic. It's got tahini and chickpeas and lemon. It's a really nice cookie. It's actually in the cookbook as well. And sesame. And sesame seeds on the outside. It's really tasty. So, I mean, for me, like, and then because we had that leftover and we had no bakers, I just started making more deli items. So we made hummus and we still sell that at the bakery. So for me, chips and hummus is like the classic. That's a good snack when you finish work or any time of the day. I mean, I guess I would I would play around. It's got to go in some sort of sourdough, like depending on the flavor combo, maybe crush it up and use it as a seasoning. What's the Japanese seasoning? Fugaraki? Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Like done seaweed before in bread so maybe we could put it inside or put it on the outside as a crust and then bake it i mean we steam the bread first of all so it probably wouldn't burn so maybe it would be a cool crust on the outside or push it into a focaccia dough or something yeah. all right well i'm not saying that you need to do that but if you do it i wouldn't i'd pay for the overnight shipping to get maybe we'd go on tiktok and go crazy seriously it probably would <laughs> All right, let's do a quick speed round with you both. Number one is for both of you. We'll do Natasha first. What did you have for dinner last night? I had a burger from my friend's cafe called the Highway Cafe in Pemberton, which is a town north of us. It was a quick, quick feed because one of my neighbors, <laughs> one of my neighbors was teaching me to pole dance last night. So I had to, um, yeah, burgers and pole dance. In oh my class. God, I should change your girl. whole introduction now. Yeah. Take, take the girl out of London. Oh. By the way. <laughs> I had a burger and I got 
on the pole. <laughs> Ed, Ed, what was your dinner? I didn't go to the class. Uh, I just made a, a pizza, sourdough pizza. We sell pizza dough at the bakery. So normally Sunday night, I make uh, pizza. It's super easy. I've got a bunch of preserved tomatoes. So yeah, sourdough. That's so funny. Ed, name a smell in the kitchen or bakery you love. Uh, toasted sesame. Name a smell in the, in the bakery you hate. The grease trap. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. anything Sorry. like, like the, mop, the mop sink or something like that, which is... It doesn't happen very often, but yeah, don't like that. Natasha, what pisses you off in the dining room or front of house? When people pick up the products and don't put them back the right way, and I have to keep running over and reshuffling the, the fridge and the shelves of all the retail products. People are so into touching stuff. It's crazy when you put something on a shelf and we have these things called dimple cups and there's like a little dimple for your thumb in the side and I have them all facing a certain way because the way the light hits it, you can see the shadow of the dimple and I swear people pick them up and they always put them back the wrong way. Sure, that's a good one. How, what makes you happy in the, in the dining room or front of house? Oh, serving all my locals. Single friendly faces. Yeah, nothing beats that. She's got a good memory. She knows a lot of names and a lot of regular orders. I have a clipboard in the drawer with all the locals and their coffee orders. Because we're in a ski town, we have a high turnover of uh, seasonal workers. I need all the people to learn the locals. They've got to learn the locals and their orders. So we have all the names written down and the drink order. So you walk in and it's straight away like, hey, Cappy, eight ounce hot chocolate with marshmallows coming up. And, you know, you feel like, yeah, I'm home now, you know? Mm -hmm. Brilliant. By the time everyone will have listened to this, our episode coming out this week will be out. But I'm telling you both, this Wednesday's episode, it's these two bartenders from the Connaught Hotel in London. You need to listen because there's, when you hear this story that they tell, you're going to be like, that's the story that he wanted us to hear. I'm not going to, I'm not going to spoil it for you both. All right. They're too, they're, they're awesome. It's, it's really cool. All right. So we started this episode saying you both have made it your life's work to change the face of what it means to run a business and bake with compassion. What is next for Ed and Natasha? We don't fully know. So it's a big question and we've been asked it because the book's been, it, it happens so organically. People told us to open a bakery and we listened. We were like, okay, we'll sell our house in the UK and put all the money we have and borrow more and open a bakery. And then the cookbook came along and you put all your time and passion into that. And now we're just excited to see what comes next in a way. We're trying to be open to opportunities and what might happen. We definitely want to grow. We might relocate. We're, we're kind of open because we know we can do more. We're still both relatively young. So we'll see. Somebody suggested that Ed could become the vegan Anthony Bourdain and get paid to travel around the world. Yeah, which is a great and eat idea. At all the vegan places. Sounds so we're really amazing. hoping that there's like a TV producer out there looking for that guy. Let's manifest and, that. Um, we're manifesting that. <laughs> Seriously. So we're just waiting for the um, invitation to go travel around the world and eat loads of great vegan food. I'll keep my eyes and ears open for any creatives. Yeah. Awesome. I'm so happy we we probably could have talked for quite a while longer, but you got to get ready for Canadian Thanksgiving soon. And I need my book in the mail that I ordered soon so I can plan what I'm going to make for American Thanksgiving. Amazing. So thank you both for your time. This was fantastic. I am dreaming up a trip out your way with the family because 
That would be amazing. And do. And do. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Thank you, I'd love that. So. Yeah, I mean, Whistler's great all year round. So if you don't ski or snowboard, yeah. you've got some of the best biking and hiking in the world. So. Yeah. And a lot of people like to bring the kids up in the summer to come and see all our friendly black bears that we have. And so we have a lot of wildlife here. That's really awesome. And loads and loads of mountain activities that are family friendly as well. So cool. Awesome. Thank you both again. Really appreciate it. And best of luck getting through the holidays and with all the promotion of the book. So Thank excited. you so much. Thanks, yeah. Kepi. Thank you. Thanks again to Ed and Natasha Tatton. Find them on Instagram at eds underscore bread. That's E-D-S underscore B-R-E-D. To learn more about Trees for the Future, go to trees.org. To learn a lot more about bread, the bakery and cafe that is, go to edsbreads.com. We'll share a link in the episode notes and at beyondtheplaypodcast.com. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media at On Kathy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is also on social at BT Plate Podcast. This episode was produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joel Yetten, and Sean Petrosian. Our digital media producer is Sarah McClellan Mead. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. As always, a special shout out to my wife, Katie. If you have a moment, would you be so kind as to rate or review and subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice? And don't forget to join us next Wednesday for an episode of Beyond the Drink, our companion podcast to Beyond the Plate, brought to you by our friends at Ford's Gin. And also our brand new podcast called Clean Play Club. Clean Play Club is a family-friendly podcast that is kind of like story time, but with recipes. You can find it on all major podcast platforms and on Instagram at cleanplayclubpod. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.